Good morning. How's everybody doing today? Woo, good to see all of you. Uh, welcome on a really, really cold morning. Um, glad to see you. I was wondering, as I saw the forecast this past week, I thought, I don't know who makes it to church at 12 degrees. Uh, but actually, big crowd in the early gathering as well just surprised me. So thank you for being here and not letting 12 degrees scare you off. Um, you know, I usually try to start on Sunday mornings with some kind of story that's relevant to the message that you know, at the end, kind of makes, you know, we, we comes full circle, makes sense. This morning, I don't have that for you, but I do have a story uh, that I thought that you would just appreciate, especially if you know me very well. Um, and it just happened, by the way, so it was just like great just to be able to do this. So in between gatherings, um, as you well know, you heard Clay talk, at the end of our gathering time together, if you're a first-time guest, uh, you can come over, trade your information for a gift that we have for you. And me and Quentin and Todd are usually standing over in the next get in the first time guest area, and usually what happens is we get to meet a few guests, and then there are people who, you know, we know that come over and have some something to say to us, talk to us. So this gentleman comes over to me uh, just a little bit ago, and um, I mean, like, and you know, thirty minutes ago, like right after the second gathering, and he's standing there, he wants to talk to me for a minute. And I've met him multiple times, uh, well enough that I know his name, and uh, so I said hello. And he asked me an interesting question. He says, are you a hunter? I said, yes, I am. I am a hunter. I, I just said, yes, yes, I am. And when I said, yes, I am, he reaches over and just embraces me. To which, if you know me very well, seems kind of awkward. I mean, I've been social distancing since way before COVID. All right. So I'm just kind of like... And eventually he steps away, and I say, yeah, I, actually, I, I harvested a pretty decent 8.2 weeks ago, and he gets this funny look, and he goes, no, I ask you, are you a hugger? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, <laughs> it turns out, I am not. <laughs> but now I understand how awkward we both feel, but thank you, thank you, so you're welcome. You are welcome. In an attempt that maybe we can focus the rest of the morning, let's pray together. Father, thank you for the day, and uh, just thank you for what you're doing in this place and the stories that you are writing and, and um, the things that you are doing. It's just fun to be a part of and exciting to see you do and watch how you work. This morning, I pray that you would focus our attention on your word, and uh, as we look at what may be a familiar section of Scripture for most people, I pray that you... Um, Maybe just enlighten us in a different way. Show us something that maybe we haven't seen before or thought about before. And, um, and God, more than anything else, would you point our attention to you, your son, your Holy Spirit, um, your work and your way, your will. And uh, may, we be, may we find ourselves in adoration of you. And may everything that we do please you in Jesus' name. Amen. Last week, we began this series called The Beginning. And uh, if you were here uh, we began on the very first page of what is called the Bible, and uh, if you are, if you did bring your Bible with you, but you know sometimes it's like a little intimidating. Maybe you're not as familiar with your Bible, or you don't think you're as familiar with your Bible as the people around you, and it's kind of uncomfortable when we go to a passage of scripture and you're like, I don't know if I know where it's at. Here's the great thing: this series, I mean, this is like this is going to be your jam, right? Because it's the easiest book to find. Like this morning, we're going to be on page one. 
And so you don't have to like go to the table of contents, just open it up. But the, book, the word Genesis in your Bible actually means the beginning. Um, and so it's the book, it's the story of the beginning. And as we look throughout the pages of the book of Genesis, we find lots of beginnings, not just the beginning. We find a lot of beginnings. We find the beginning of God's story with humanity, God's narrative with humanity. Understand that God has no beginning. As we looked at last week, he actually begins the book of Genesis saying this way, in the beginning, God. And not at the beginning there was God, or at the beginning God started, because God has no start. It just means, and when it talks about in the beginning of the book of Genesis, it's talking about the beginning of God's revelation of himself to humanity. It's the beginning of the human story, not the beginning of God's story, which is so incredibly difficult for me to even wrap my head around. Uh, as if you were here last week, we kind of talked about the significance of God being uh, there before the beginning of the story of humanity. And, and for me, uh, it's easy for me to understand God being everlasting or easier for me to understand God being everlasting than it is for me to understand that he is from everlasting to everlasting. For me, the idea that something can last forever is a little easier to comprehend, albeit still difficult, than to be able to understand something that has no beginning. I can actually understand something having no end, I feel like, better than something having no beginning. But to think that God doesn't have a beginning, I, I remember as a kid asking either a, a, one of my parents or a Sunday school teacher, somebody, pastor maybe, as a kid saying, you know, where did God come from? And them giving me the worst answer ever, although the answer was right, when they said uh, he didn't. I'm like, well, no, where did God come from? He didn't come from me. He just always was. And for, as a kid, I was like, I, don't, I can't even comprehend that because there is nothing in our experience or our existence that comes from nothing. And yet, as Moses is writing the story of the historical narrative of God's revelation to us as humanity and beginning the story of humanity, he begins by reminding us that before there was, there was God. Before anything we experience, our frustrations or our joys, our defeats or our successes, um, our ups or our downs, before any of that, God predates everything that we experience. And it gives us a certain amount of joy and can lead to a certain amount of confidence to remember that the things that we deal with have met God's permission first. That, that the, the eternal nature of God is what allows for the sovereignty of God and to understand that God is completely in control. But for those of you who have been in church any length of time or have any experience with the Bible, you know that that's not the whole verse uh, you know that Genesis 1-1 is not in the beginning God. And so what I want to look at this morning is I want to continue Genesis 1, and I want us to look at the creation narrative, the historical narrative of the creation of the planet and the creation of humanity. And I want to give a little bit of a disclaimer up front about what we are not necessarily going to talk about this morning, um, because... I'm actually interested in talking about what we're not going to talk about. I just don't think it's the most important thing to talk about. And I'm willing to talk to you offline about it because I really enjoy it. But what I'm not going to talk about this morning uh, in detail in the message is I'm not going to go into the details of creation versus evolution. Okay? Uh, and, and I recognize in a crowd this size, and uh, in, in an audience like LifePoint, we could have varying ideas about how this whole thing got started. Okay? I want to very clearly up front tell you that I have done extensive research throughout my life and explored the possibilities of almost every theory that exists out there about how all of this came into being. 
Um, personally, I am a six-day creationist. Uh, I, take the, I take Genesis 1 very literally. I think that when, and you're going to see it in a minute as we walk through it, that there are six days of creation. I think those are six 24-hour time periods. Uh, I think God actually rested on the seventh day. We're going to deal with that in a couple of weeks, I think, or maybe next week. I don't remember when we're dealing with it. In this series, we're going to deal with it. Uh, I, I take them very literally, all right? Now, you may be thinking, Matt, that's pretty shallow. What about science? Well, I'm glad you asked. I actually love science. I I am a math guy, which is a form of science. Um, I love the scientific method. I was introduced to the scientific method uh, by Coach Yarbrough when I was in high school. He ended up being my football coach. State the problem, form a hypothesis. I'm all about the scientific method. I love it. I think that science is vitally important to our experience. I am all for research, exploration. I'm all about the experimentation. I'm all about determining How do things happen and where do they come from? I think it is vital and critical. And I have explored virtually every possible idea. I'm not here this morning to necessarily convince you of any other idea. This is what I want to tell you. When it comes to the subject of evolution and creationism, evolution is more closely a faith than it is a science. And if you're an evolutionist in the room, you probably just got really frustrated with me. And I'm sorry, I want to clarify why I say that. The reason I would say that is that evolution is largely based on a bias that there is no God. It begins with a premise that that God doesn't exist. And so we need to figure out our origin outside of God. Now, you may say, I don't think that, Matt. Okay, I'm not saying you think that. I'm saying that's largely the basis for origin of species and the theory of evolution. Now, you might, and because of that bias, because of the bias that there is no God, as we begin to look at data and we begin to experiment, and scientists do that, that bias supersedes the ability to interpret the data purely on the data. Now, if I were you, I would be having this question, well, Matt, don't you have a bias toward creationism? And my answer to you would be, Yes, I do. A very extreme bias, a very heavy-handed bias. The difference between me and science on that is I'm willing to admit that I have a bias, that I think there's a God that exists that gives an account of creation in the first chapter of Genesis. And because of my confidence in the first chapter of Genesis, I tend to believe it happens the way it did. Now, and I'm about to be finished, and we're just going to talk about the real message. This is not the real message, right? This is just some, you know, pre-message information for you. You may say, what makes you want to believe this archaic book written by a guy named Moses thousands of years ago who wasn't even there when this happened? I want you to understand that I do not believe in Genesis chapter 1 just because it is written in a book called the Bible. Now, when I say that, now not only have I made the evolutionists mad, I got some Jesus people mad at me now, probably. So hang on if you're the Jesus person that goes, I don't like that sentence. You mean to tell me you don't believe the Bible is true? I believe the Bible is 100% true. I believe it's inerrant. I believe it's without failure. I believe there's nothing in it. Listen, I not only believe Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, I even believe numbers, and I've never been in a church with accurate numbers, and I believe the numbers is even true, all right? I believe the gospels are true. I believe the epistles are true. I believe the book of the Revelation is true. I believe from cover to cover it is true and inerrant, but I don't believe it's true just because it's the Bible. 
Just because somebody told me this is the Holy Bible is not why I believe it's true. I believe Genesis 1 and the historical account of creation, not just because it's found in the Bible, I believe it because of a man named Jesus who walked out of a grave. I believe the Bible is true because I believe the resurrection is true, not the other way around. I don't believe the resurrection is true just because it's in the Bible. I believe that the Bible is true because of the resurrection. You say, help me out with that, Matt. Well, there's a man named Jesus that 2,000 years ago walked and talked. That guy gave credibility to the Old Testament scriptures. Not once did he ever talk about it being an allegory or an illustration or an ideal or, or some fabricated story. He presented the Old Testament as facts and articulated them in ways that made it very interesting and very compelling to understand. That same guy predicted his death, how he would die, how long he would stay die, and that he would walk out of a grave, and then he did it. And he presented himself to multiple eyewitnesses who at the time of the writing of the New Testament, Paul, the, the Apostle Paul actually encouraged people, if you want to know if this really happened, there are still some people alive that you can go and talk to who saw him after, saw him dead, saw him alive. And I believe that there is ample evidence to believe that Jesus actually came back to life. And because I believe that, now I believe that if that is true, then him saying the rest of Scripture is true makes Scripture credible to me. So I, therefore, believe what the Bible says because of the resurrection. If you're halfway tracking with me, shake your head. So because of that now, I want to see Genesis chapter 1 and consider it from this perspective. If I believe the Bible because of the resurrection, then I also believe that the Bible was written not just by human hands, but under the direction of the Holy Spirit. And so then I consider, what is the intent of the Holy Spirit as he provides for us this account in Genesis chapter 1? And I want to show you the account. And I want us to consider, what does the Holy Spirit of God want us to learn, know, or do as a result of what we find in Genesis 1? Let's finish the story. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And I want you to notice the poetic nature of this creation account. And I realize that in the room, I am probably the least artsy, and probably certainly on our staff, and whoever would come up here and teach, other than maybe Todd, I am the least of the arts. And, but it's important that you notice the artsy nature of this, because what we are going to see is not just what God does, but how he articulates it through the author Moses. And what you're going to discover is a God who is creative in nature, who is expressive, who is even willing to communicate this in a poetic way. God could have just said in the beginning, I created the earth and the heavens and that was it. But instead, he begins to, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit and through the author Moses, he articulates this very artistically and creatively. The earth was without form and void, and the darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, and here we begin to hear God speak. And I want you to notice a pattern that evolves throughout the story of the, of the historical creation account. He says, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was, let me hear it again. And God saw that the light was 
good. And God separated the light from the darkness. He called the light day. He called the darkness night. And there was evening and there was morning the first day. And I love, I love the way God starts with this. He says, let there be light because it is really the light that allows us to experience all that we're going to see that happens in the next few days. It is the light that illuminates. It is light that provides color. It is light that allows us to experience these other things. And so naturally, God would begin with the light. Uh, interesting thing, if you want to go back and look to is to parallel J- John chapter 1, as John talks about, in the beginning was the word. And Jesus is often known as the light of the world. And it's interesting as we see the light come into the world in John chapter 1, how much it correlates with the Genesis chapter 1 account of light literally entering the world at God's word. It's a very interesting correlation that you could enjoy, but that's for another day. At the end of the first day, we find that God created light. And then God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And I began to think about what that must have been like for Moses the day the Holy Spirit told him to write this. I don't even know what that means. I mean, think about that. What is happening here in the creative process, we can't even begin to comprehend. God looks at the waters, and the thing that he speaks and says is, hey, there needs to be an expanse in the middle of the water, so separate water from water. And I feel like Moses is writing this, and and at one point he went, what? Never mind, I don't even want to know. I'll just write it. And then imagine if you're the water. And God says, hey, water, I need you to separate water from water. I'm not sure if you know what to do. But apparently what's happening here is this is where God takes the waters of the earth that he's created and he separates it and he creates almost what scientists have called a hydrosphere, where we have an atmosphere. It appears as though between this point in human history and the flood, the earth was somewhat different in that it had a hydrosphere instead of an atmosphere, which would also explain why people live to be so much longer or so much older. And the other thing that it would explain that's very interesting is the vitality of people during this time frame. Uh, because scientists would tell us if that actually happened, there was a hydrosphere, then the pressure of oxygen on Earth would have probably been greater than what it is now. And so it would almost been like you were living with an oxygen mask, like you see football players on the sideline, like all the time. Like just to breathe would have been like an exciting experience because our bodies would have been able to process and utilize that oxygen so much more level at such a greater level but that's apparently what he was doing there is he was separating the waters and he was making the earth and have an experience of like a hydrosphere and God made the expanse he separated the waters that were under the expanse of the waters that were above the expanse and it was so and God called the expanse heaven and there was evening and there was morning the second day and God said let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear and it was so And God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was, it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit, in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was, it was good. And there was evening And there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. 
And let them be lights in the expanse of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And you're like, what is God doing here? Well, it makes sense. He kind of clarifies it. God made the two great lights. The greater light to rule the day, we would call that the sun. The lesser light to rule the night, we call that the moon. And the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. Interestingly about this particular verse is I want you to notice that God apparently creates the sun a day after he creates the vegetation and the plants. Now, why would God do that? I don't know. God does whatever God wants to do. But one thing, I think, is that there's a popular theory out there that each one of the days of creation is actually an age of creation. It's like an era of time that could be billions of years in each between each day. And I think the reason that God created the sun the day after he created the trees is so that we would have a reason to understand that that's not what he did. It does not represent ages and eras. Because if you remember from science, that the trees really and the plants, they have a, there's a pretty important need that they have from the sun. It's called photosynthesis. It's the way they eat. It's what allows for their survival. So they could probably survive a day without the sun, but to think they could survive millions of years without the sun stands in stark contrast to what scientists says and what science would suggest about what a plant is. And I think God does those little things intentionally just to remind us that maybe it's worth considering the possibility that God just does things the way that it looks like he did them in the book of Genesis. And God saw that it was good. And there was evening and there was morning the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures. The day he was thinking about Matt, as he put bass in Lake Gunnersville, and he put redfish in the coastal waters of Florida and South Alabama. And let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. You're welcome, all you duck hunters. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm. And without that, we wouldn't have shark week, according to their kinds, and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and God blessed them. Saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, Let us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, make man in our image and after our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And then God looked at his work and said that it was all good. And we have an opportunity to consider what we find in Genesis 1 and ask this question, what does this really mean to us and for us? And and I certainly think that part of the purpose of Genesis chapter 1 is simply for knowledge and information. I think there's an aspect of it that that its purpose is to give us an account of where we came from because there is something deep inside of us 
that longs to know what was in the beginning. How did this whole thing start? It is our inquisitive nature about our beginnings that actually leads to research and understanding and development and experimentation. And I think there's part of Genesis 1 that is there, or, or, or part of the reason it's there is to give us an answer of where we came from. That if we can understand how we started, maybe we can understand better how we got to where we're at. But I think there's more to it. You see, in Genesis chapter 1, as we get to verse 26, one of the things we begin to realize is that, is that there is something different about us. That in, in, in everything that God created and said that was good, he speaks it into existence. But there's one difference about us is that he says that he creates us in his image, that we bear the resemblance. We, we carry the thumbprint of God. That we are not... We are not God, and we are not, and God is not just like us, but that we bear a resemblance. We are a, we, 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 we share the identity of God. There's a, there's an aspect of us that we can understand who we are and what we are like by understanding who God is and what he's like. And that what we see in Genesis chapter one is a creative God who is doing something incredibly special and gracious for us. Last night I opened up Google and I searched scripture for the scripture, the, the, the verses in scripture that contain aspects of the creative nature of God. And I, Google, I found a webpage that there were 64 of them. I, that's probably not accurate, okay? There's probably more than 64. But I did read through 64 verses of scripture last night that have something to do with the way, with God as creator, that has something to do with saying something about him being the maker. And as I began to read through those, I found a very interesting common link between virtually every one of them. And I want to show you that common link. I want to show you four verses of scripture of different people who take a minute to consider what we see in Genesis chapter one. Different people who decide to take a deep breath and look at this thing called earth that God created. To look at the earth and the heavens and the seas. To consider the stars and the moon and the sun. To look at the creeping animals and the, the animals of the sea and the birds of the air. And to look at the stars and the sun and the moon. And I want you to see what happens when they take a look at what we see in Genesis Chapter 1, we'll begin with the psalmist. The psalmist says it this way in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the skies above proclaim his handiwork. And I imagine the psalmist one night just going outside, and he looks up at the sky. And he sees the stars, and maybe he sees the moon. And rather than just looking up and saying, this is amazing, and look at the beauty and, and look at the twinkling of the stars and the, the different phases of the moon if you go out in multiple nights and just going, wow, this is really beautiful. Instead, the psalmist pauses for a minute and he listens and he considers and he gazes. And if you go out at night and you just look up at the heavens and you listen very closely, let me tell you what you will hear. You'll begin to hear the melody the stars and the moon that are singing of the glory of God. 
you'll begin to hear the faint whispers of the worship that is suddenly begins to fill your heart and your mind as you look up and go, this is something more grand than I could have ever imagined. And you'll begin to, if you listen closely, you'll hear the heavens declare the glory of the God and the sky above proclaim his handiwork. Is that we have a tendency sometimes to look at the beauty of the tapestry and the mosaic of this thing that we call earth. And we have a tendency to look at it and and we find ourselves in all of the creation instead of in all of the creator. But as you begin to look through the pages of scripture, virtually every time, that one of the writers of Scripture finds themselves looking at creation. They have the same response. It declares the glory of God. It proclaims his handiwork. In fact, in the book of the Revelation, the last book of the Bible, what you'll find is one of the songs that are being sung by the elders in the throne room of heaven is, Worthy are you, O Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. The elders are saying, God, we declare your glory. We give unto you honor, and wor- we, we say you are worthy, not just because of how good you are to us, not just because of your salvation, but you are worthy because this was all your idea, and you spoke it into existence. In Isaiah, it says, For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God, who formed the earth and made it. He established it. And I want you to notice this. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. Now, I want you to hang with me for a minute. I want you to consider something. I don't know that we entirely know why we are here. And why I say we and here, I don't mean me and you at life point. I'm talking about a very deeper question like why does humanity exist and and what are we here for? And I want you to know I'm not entirely certain of that answer. Uh, There's a popular answer out there that says, I mean, among people who believe in God and believe that he is creator that says that God needed us. And so he created us as though God was some lonely God out in the expanse of the universe somewhere. And I want you to know this, that is 100% not at all the case. I have full confidence that is not necessary, that that is not it, because there is nothing we offer that God needs. He is fully self-sufficient. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit wasn't in heaven, go, or wherever they were at one point, going, if only we just had some humans, then our life would be complete. That was not God at all. But God, at some point in time, and by the way, I've met some of you, And I know me real well. There's no way God needed us. In fact, we can be really annoying. I mean, at least you can, right? I was kidding. It's not like we offer something to God that just would brighten his day and make it all better. What we can at least assume is this, is that God wanted us. I don't think God needed us, but he wanted us. She said, how do you know that? Because God doesn't have to do anything he doesn't want. And in Genesis 1.26, when he said, let us make man in our image, that was a declaration of his will and his desire, not his need or his lack of function. And when God decided he needed, that he wanted us, I don't want you to miss, hang on with me with this. He decided he wanted us and he was going to create a place for us. He could have, if he had wanted to, just taken some sand and put it between two panes of glass 
and stuck us in there and watched us like we were his favorite ant farm. We could have just crawled around in the sand making tunnels for God's entertainment. And by the way, if he had wanted to do that, that would have been fine. And we still should have been in the sand digging tunnels and singing praises to the glory of God because he wouldn't have been any different. And yet in a picture of his grace and his compassion and his love, he made the earth and he formed it. And he did not create it empty. It's just a bland, boring place. He formed it to be inhabited. When God decided he wanted you and he wanted me, and he began to dream of a place for us, he dreamed of that place with a mosaic of color, with a tapestry of topography, with mountaintops and gorges and bluffs and ridges and valleys and snow and grasses and flowers. He, he designed a place with topography and water that would seek its own equilibrium. And you say, what? What does that matter? Here's what that matters. It means that all the water of the world would flow to the oceans and the seas and in the process would, cre would create rivers and streams and rapids. That when you stood on the edge of a stream and you watched as the water bubbled across the rocks and created a wave and sometimes had those little splashes that you would stand there and you would listen to the bubbling of the creek and look at the beauty of the rapids and would be overwhelmed by the beauty of what he created all because God said it doesn't have to be formed empty. I can make it a place to be inhabited and I'll plant some little flowers on the side of the stream. And there'll be vegetation with a big giant oak tree that'll grow up to provide shade while they stand here and enjoy it. And right over here would be a great place for a mountaintop where they could stand on top of it, surrounded by snow, and look out at what I have made and find themselves amazed as they look out and listen closely as creation declares the glory of God. And proclaims that it is his handiwork. You know, he could have formed it empty. But he didn't. He formed it to be inhabited. My favorite verse, at least my favorite psalm. In Psalm 8. The psalmist says, when I look at your heavens. And the work of your fingers. The moon and the stars. Which you have set in place. What is man that you are mindful of him. And the sons of man that you care for him. You see the Genesis 1 narrative of creation reminds us to take a look at what he has made and recognize that he is really big and far superior to our ability to understand. And his ways are outweigh ours by eons. And to force us to a place that we look and go, you are so big and I am so small and yet you care about me. And gives us a minute to pause and say, what is it that God is doing? Why is it that God has done this? And as I begin to consider that, 
I think that the reason that we have the creation narrative in Genesis 1 is not just to provide us information. But it's to inspire us. It's, it's, to, it's to cause us to be in awe and be inspired. It's to put us in a place like the psalmist and the elders that are in heaven in the book of the Revelation. In a place where Isaiah found himself where we look at what God has done and we stand in awe. We look at it and go, God, thank you for this mosaic of beauty that you have provided that constantly reminds us of how big you are and how good you are. And if the heavens are going to declare your glory, then so am I. If the handiwork is going to proclaim your glory, then so am I. As, it, it's interesting, by the way, that of all the things that God created in Genesis chapter 1, the only one that has the capability to not declare his glory is his most prized of the creation, me and you. And I think that Genesis 1 gives us an opportunity to revisit who God is and what he did for us in those six days and to say to him, I just want to stand in awe. I want my life to declare the glory of God. But then as you're doing that, I don't want you to walk away from Genesis 1.26. that says, and then God said, let us make man in our image. You see, the fact that God reveals himself as creator and maker and builder and then says we are going to be made in his image is the reminder to us that we are creators and we are makers and we are builders. And what he has done in creation should inspire us to create and to build and to make and to imagine. Can, can I tell you what I think is one of the saddest things? Is that I believe that the church should be the most creative place on the planet. And I think we've let in Hollywood and the culture steal that from us. I think we should be more creative than Hollywood. I think we should be more creative than our culture. I think we should be more creative than the artists who don't know Jesus. I think that we should be the most creative people on the planet because we are the ones who bear the image of God and understand that and believe him to be the one who has made all of it. He is the, he is the crap. He is the, it is his handiwork. And we should be inspired by his handiwork to understand that, that we are his handiwork. We are his workmanship. We were created for good works in Christ Jesus that he designed beforehand. And we should be creating and we should be dreaming and we should be making and we should be building. And one of my favorite things is as Jesus' time on earth was drawing close to an end. He gathers disciples one day and he asks a couple of questions. And as he got their answers, he then looked at them and he said, On this rock I will, what? Build my church. He reminds, suddenly he reminds us that he was the word who was with God and was God, and that all things were made by him and nothing that was made wasn't, was made without him. There was nothing that was made that wasn't made by him. It is a point back to the reminder that he was the creator of Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 1. And now as he's doing a brand new thing with a brand new mission, to love people in the same way that he had loved them, he said, I want to remind you, I'm going to 
build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. And it's an invitation to join him in the process of building again and making again and molding again and imagining and dreaming again. We should be the most creative on the planet because we have the most to create for. We have the opportunity to write the best songs that they would declare the glory of God, to write the best music that it would glorify God, to paint the best paintings and to build the best things, to imagine the greatest of possibilities, to make things better wherever we're at, and to accept responsibility for the part of us, one of the parts of us, that reflects the nature of God, that not only is he the creator, but we are also creators. And the creative energy that God displays in Genesis chapter 1 should inspire us to create in ways that would capture the attention and the imagination of a world that's watching. Be inspired. And be in awe. Maybe just maybe, the next time you're standing on the edge of a mountain or standing in your backyard looking up at the stars or kayaking down a stream with rapids or hiking a mountain path or standing on a beach somewhere. Just maybe. There'll be this subtle reminder that as you enjoy it, be in awe and be inspired. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this morning and thank you for revealing yourself to us in Genesis chapter 1 and providing for us a framework and a narrative to help us better understand who you are and the character of your character and what it is that you're doing. Thank you, God, that we often, we, we often consider your grace at the cross and certainly you demonstrated grace there. But thank you that even in Genesis 1, before there was sin, before there was rebellion, you showed your grace in that you could have built this empty, but instead you formed it to be inhabited. You, you didn't have to make flowers pretty. You didn't have to make fruit trees tasty. You didn't have to make the birds sing beautifully. You didn't have to make the grass pleasant as we walk on it barefooted. But instead, God, you appealed to our senses in your grace, you showed the details of your creative process in a way that causes us to look up into the heavens and be reminded that the heavens declare your glory. And God, may we sing along with the melody of the heavens and declare your glory with our lives. In Jesus' name.